Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 107th program in this series. I'm in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer in the sense that this is the Lord praying directly to his God at the end of his ministry. And considering the record that we have of what Jesus said, it appears that his disciples overheard what Jesus was expressing to his God in prayer. Again, Jesus is God manifested in the flesh, and he is functioning as a man. He came here to live as a man, and as a man, you would expect him to pray to his God, and so that's what he's doing. Now, at the end of the previous program, I was in verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And in the previous program, I was explaining that they decided to believe the truth that God revealed. And because of this decision that they made, they were identified as belonging to God. What God did was he presented the truth, and he presented the truth in a way that if anyone wanted to respond to the truth, they were free to do so. But that was how he decided to select people, and that's how he continues. To select people is by presenting the truth and waiting to see if anyone will respond. And their response is their decision. It is our decision to respond to the truth that God reveals or not respond to the truth that God reveals. But he establishes a claim on individuals through presenting the truth and those who respond to the truth he considers to be his. And in this context, he has given them to the Messiah who was there to present the truth of God. And at the end of verse 6, Jesus said that the disciples, these men, they kept his word. Now, this is open-ended. We don't know the details concerning what it means to say that they kept his word. What does that mean? Does that mean that they obeyed the commandments perfectly? I, I don't think so. But there are people who will make that assumption and say that that is the fulfillment of what Jesus described when he said, they have kept your word. They could have also just simply believed that this word came from God and they have embraced the word in the sense that they are remembering the word. They are remembering the words that were given to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to act on those words or they are going to respond to those words in any profound way, at least not yet. This is just a general description to say that our God presented himself as a man And he presented the truth to these guys, and these guys received it. 
They paid attention. They listened. They are considering what God has had to say. They are wanting to find ways to apply what they have learned and what they have embraced. But this is something that's going to take some time. This is going to take some life circumstances for them to participate in in order for these truths to really be manifested in their life experience. They need to have life experience for these truths to be manifested in their life experiences. So this is open-ended. I don't think we have a clear definition of exactly what Jesus was intending to say when he said that they have kept your word, kept the word of God. And so we should be careful not to try to give an absolute definition for what this could mean or how it could be represented. Moving on into verse 7, Jesus said, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Well, did they know that before? Maybe they knew that a little bit before that they knew that what was given to Jesus came from God and Jesus lived his life with what was given to him. They could have acknowledged that. They could have understood that to a reasonable degree as it was manifested in the things that he said and in the things that he did. So what would Jesus be saying when he says, now, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Didn't they know this before? They could have known this before, at least to a certain extent. But now they may know this a little bit more in the sense that they might trust in this a little bit more. They might believe in this a little bit more. How much more? Well, enough for Jesus to say now. But that doesn't mean that they won't know more later. It just means that Jesus is expressing, look, these guys have received the truth and they know enough. They know enough of the truth for us to move forward in our relationship with him. That's what I see in verse 7. Moving into verse 8, for I have given to them the words which you have given me and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. He gives a little bit more detail here. He does express that they believe that God sent him. They recognize that Jesus came forth from God. They have received the truth that Jesus has spoken of. And they recognize that the truth that Jesus spoke of, the words that he presented, came from God. So we have, in verse 8, we have a little bit more of a definition, but it still is a little open-ended, and it's something for us to at least start with. It's good to recognize that we have a starting point, but to what degree the truth that Jesus conveyed is going to be an integral part of their lives, this is going to be an individual experience. In addition to that, you need to remember that what Jesus was teaching when he was conducting his ministry was the Old Covenant, because that was the covenant that was in effect until after he died. And so these words that they have received are the words of the law. The truth that has been conveyed is the truth of the law, and they believe that God has sent Jesus to convey these truths They have received these truths, but what are they going to do with this? 
What are they really, are they going to devote their entire lives from this day forward to living in obedience to the commandments of God? Of course not. They couldn't do that before. They're not going to do this afterwards. Certainly there's going to be a change considering being born again, having the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but that initiates a different kind of relationship that's not about repentance and obedience. That initiates a new relationship based on an inheritance that we receive as a result of his death. So in the new covenant, we live by the inheritance that we have received instead of living by the old covenant with hope that maybe we will be obedient enough that we will receive the blessings of God. In the old covenant, you repent and obey with the hope that you will be blessed. In the new covenant, he has obeyed and he has provided for the forgiveness of sins so that he can bless us, give us all that we need for life and godliness, and we can now live with what we have. The Old Covenant is about trying to obtain something from God. The New Covenant is about learning to live with what we have already been given because of what Jesus did for us. So if the disciples have received the words up to this point, if they have received the truth up to this point, well, good for them. This is good. We should be thankful. But this is not what they are going to need in order to Live the Christian life. Live their lives in the new covenant. This is what they need in order to come to the end of the old covenant, but it's not what they need in order to have the beginning of the new covenant. So what Jesus did is good, and what the disciples received is good. But at the end of his ministry, at this time, we are at the end of the purpose of the things that he communicated of the things that he shared. Now, it's the end for the disciples in the sense that they should embrace the new covenant, but everyone who has been born into this world, one generation after the next, everyone needs to be confronted with these fundamental issues that are related to the old covenant. Everyone needs to be confronted with the truth that they have no hope outside of his grace and mercy. Everyone needs to be confronted with that. And so however a person comes to that recognition through whatever system of law, of religion that they embrace, if they will eventually recognize that there is no hope outside of God's grace and mercy and they genuinely need his forgiveness and they need to rest in his forgiveness, they need the sin issue to come to an end. However they reach that point, they should reach that point and everyone needs to come to that point so that they are ready to embrace the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the acceptance of God, and the inheritance in Christ Jesus. So in that sense, the law can be applicable today, just as it was back then. And there are people today who embrace the law and try to apply it to their lives. When they do that, they are open to recognizing, eventually, they may eventually recognize that they simply cannot get right with God through their repentance and obedience as much as they may try. So again, in verse 8, when he said, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Well, that's nice, 
but we're just getting started. This is just the beginning. Will you recognize that God sent Jesus? That's a good start, but it's just a start. Will you believe that Jesus came from God? That's a start. That's a good start. But there is so much more. Continuing into verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, again, as I explained in the previous verses, to be a person who God gives to Jesus in this abstraction, you have to be the person who decides to respond to the truth that God has revealed concerning the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, concerning your condition, concerning his provision, that he came forth from God, things like that. And when you decide to believe the truth that is revealed, then you become one of his. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm not praying for the people who have decided not to believe. That's what he says. He says, I am not going to pray for the people who have decided not to believe. Don't get caught up in this idea that God has given some people to Jesus and other people God has not given. Well, the way that he distinguishes between the two is not by his decision to choose arbitrarily this person or that person. He presented the truth, and through the presentation of the truth, that became the means by which the decision would be made. He decided to express the truth, and we can decide if we are going to embrace it or not. So he's not interested in praying for those who have rejected the truth. That's what he says. I am not praying for those who have rejected the truth. Now, what is he effectively saying? Don't get lost in this word prayer. It's just a formal word to say that he is talking to God. So if you consider that kind of definition, then I think you can appreciate when I say that Jesus is telling his God, look, I don't have anything to say about these people who have rejected the truth. I don't have anything to say about these people. I don't have anything to say for them. I don't have any requests for you to intervene in any additional way. There's nothing to talk about. These people have decided that they don't want to believe the truth. Jesus presented the truth and they rejected the truth. There's nothing more to say. We're done. There's nothing to talk about. Why should he bother talking with God about these people? There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to say. There's no divine intervention, not anymore, that God is going to do in order to manifest the truth to these people. Now, perhaps one day they will experience some kind of profound change in their life such that they will have to rethink their life, maybe redefine their lives. And when they do in this experience, maybe they'll reconsider the things that Jesus had to say, that the scriptures have to say. Maybe they'll reconsider these things and consider including, at least a little bit more, of the truth in the new definition of their lives. And if they do, well, then they become a person who God has given to Jesus through the presentation of the truth because they have responded and believed. And then there's something to talk about. Then there's something to say. But apart from that, there's just simply nothing to say. So when Jesus said, I do not 
pray for those of the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I want you to see how Jesus feels about the people in the world. And here in verse 9, this is what he has to say. We don't have anything more to talk about. There's nothing more to say. There's nothing to pray for. We're done. And he is going to use his time and use his efforts to work with the people who do believe what he has to say. Continuing into verse 10, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 10 is just another way for us to see that Jesus is God. God manifested in the flesh as Jesus. Just as God wants to be known, so Jesus is also going to be known because they really are the same person. Verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So this is his prayer. He asks that there may be some divine intervention of some kind so that the disciples, so that the believers, so that other children of God, those of us who are in the world when Jesus is not in the world, that those of us may be one with one another. This is what he would like to see. Well, how are we going to be one with one another? There's only one way for this to take place. And that is when we believe the same thing. That's how it happens. The Father and Jesus are one in many respects. First of all, they are one in the sense that they really are the same person. But in this context, the presentation of oneness has to do with the connection between Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, on the basis of truth, on the basis of reality, that they both believe and know the same thing and the same person. And there is no confusion between Jesus and God in the sense that they really do believe the truth. They really do know the truth. And so there's no opportunity for any confusion or any lack of oneness. But when it comes to us, if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of confusion. And it's very difficult to find people who believe in Jesus, who believe the truth in many respects. We can all agree on some truths, for example, the forgiveness of sins. Usually we can agree on that and what that means. We can usually agree that we're not to live by the law, even though a lot of people will tend to default to living by the law anyway. But that's what I mean, is that we can acknowledge some truths and get close to one another, close to oneness. But it only happens when what both of us believe is genuinely true. Now, there's a difference between what is genuinely true and what is in agreement. For example, a person might believe that God still holds our sins against us and the decision with regards to whether or not we really are going to be saved is going to happen at the last moment when we are before the throne of God according to our works. If you find two people who believe that same 
doctrine that I just explained. Well, they may be one with one another, but they are not one with one another on the basis of truth. So they will still live in a sense of confusion. They still will have a lack of faith. They will not have much participation from God in their lives when they're believing things like this, because there's not much that God can do with a person who believes something like that. So they're not going to be one with God in a significant way. They might be one with him to a certain extent, but that is a limited experience. That is a limited extent. And yet with others, they might be very close to one another because they believe this same doctrine that isn't true, but they both believe it. So they're one with one another, but they are not one with their God when it comes to that particular subject. So if there is going to be a genuine oneness that is consistent with what Jesus wants, then the only way that this is going to be real is if one person looks to their God and believes the truth that God has revealed. Another person looks to their God and believes the truth that he has revealed and that this has to be true, this has to be real, not a distorted view of what God has done, but something that is genuinely what he's done and what he has had to say then these two people can become one with one another because they do share a oneness with their God. So we must first have a oneness with our God, and then we will have a true, legitimate oneness with one another. There is no other way. People may work very hard to try to create oneness with others, And, you know, one of the common ways that people try to do this is they try to reduce the number of truths that we need to share in common. Just reduce the number of truths. The fewer number of truths that we define as our criteria for oneness, the fewer of those that we have, then the more people you will be able to make one. You'll be able to have an increase in the oneness of the congregation, when you reduce the number of truths that you try to bind people together with. If you reduce the number of truths too much, though, you may have such a dilution of the truth that you may not have much faith at all. You may easily end up with a definition of a relationship that's so watered down, it is really of no functional use whatsoever. And I mean that in the sense that there's not much God can do with a person who does not embrace a certain amount of these truths. How much that is, is, of course, another subject to discuss. At this time, I'm only trying to explain that even though Jesus is praying that people may be one, just as he and the Father are one, he may pray that we are one. There's only one way that this is going to happen, and that is if we together embrace the same truths. And these truths have to be the real ones that were genuinely presented by our God. Otherwise, if we are bound together with a bunch of things that are not true, it's only a matter of time before these things that we believe are not true lead us into a form of bondage. And the bondage that people live in, that they exist in, will decay or 
diminish or cause a breakdown with regards to the relationships that exist between people. And that oneness that a congregation may start with will just go away. And then what? What have you got then? You don't have anything. And this can be okay because this would give people an opportunity to revisit the things they believe and go back to their God and ask the Lord, are these things that I believe true or are they not true? What are the things that I believe that are not true? And as they reevaluate their beliefs and they reevaluate what God has presented and why there is an opportunity for a renewal in terms of faith and an increase in the oneness between them and their God, which can then give new opportunities to have oneness with another congregation of people. So while Jesus will pray for this, while he prayed for this, the degree to which this is going to be realized is something that's going to be different for everyone and for different generations. It may be something that he wanted, but as you can tell through the history of the church, this has been a real struggle. Thank you for listening. This is the 107th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in John chapter 17, verses 7 through 11, where Jesus was praying to God that we would be one with one another, just as he is one with the Father. And I was explaining that this is only possible by having an agreement of what the truth really is, regardless of the subject, and that we need to keep our focus on our God, who is the person Who defines truth? And as long as one person believes the truth as God sees the truth, and another believes the truth as God sees the truth, then the two of them will be one with one another. Without this, there will be confusion. It will not be possible for people to be one with one another, at least not for very long. If they are in agreement with something that is not true, but they think that it is, That will eventually fail. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is livinggodministries.net. Thank you,